I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 80 of Caro Pop. This episode is brought to you by Squeezebox Books and Music at 743 Main Street in Evanston, Illinois. Squeezebox will be open at 10 a.m. Saturday, April 22nd for Record Store Day, and the place is loaded with cool must-haves. Just don't get in line ahead of me, please. I have a long list. Go to the Squeezebox Books and Music Facebook page and squeezeboxbooks.com for more information. This is part two of our conversation with producer Brad Wood. Part one ended with him talking about the making of Liz Fair's 1993 debut album, Exile in Guyville, which turned out to be a trailblazer, groundbreaker, classic, you name it. The two of them regrouped quickly to make the follow-up album, Whip Smart, which came out a little more than a year later. How did they approach updating her sound? with the title track's bouncy drum pattern. And the crunch of the single, Supernova. How did they wind up working in the Bahamas? What happened with the big tour that was supposed to follow the album's release? Why does Wood assume he'll never perform on stage with Fair again? Wood's work on Fair's third album, White Chocolate Space Egg, came late in the process and included what became the two singles, Polyester Bride and Johnny Feelgood. How did that happen? Corgan hired Wood to produce the 1998 Smashing Pumpkins album, Adore, but Wood did not complete that project. Still, Wood produced key tracks from the album, including the opener, To Sheila, and the single, Ava Adore. Wood has gained perspective on what went wrong there, and also shares his key takeaway from that experience. Wood had a more harmonious collaboration with Veruca Salt, another Chicago band, this one led by singer-songwriter-guitarists Nina Gordon and Louise Post. Wood produced their 1994 debut album, American Thighs, which came out on Chicago's Minty Fresh label before being picked up by Geffen. What was the band's dynamic like? When Wood first heard Seether, did he think it was a hit? What impressed him most about the sounds that Post and Gordon were getting out of their guitars? Wood eventually moved from Chicago to Los Angeles' San Fernando Valley. Why did he do that? Does being in LA change the nature of his work and the bands he produces? Among those bands were the Bangles, who reunited to make the Wood-produced 2003 album, Doll Revolution. We both held hands, fell into the water. Wood listened to the recent Carol Pop conversation with Bangles drummer Debbie Peterson, who shared some unpleasant producer and label tales from the band's rise in the 1980s. Wood was determined to let the Bangles be the Bangles on Doll Revolution, though he has some thoughts on the producer's challenges on those earlier albums. There's a lot more about the music industry, Wood's work, his reunion with Liz Fair on the 2021 album Soberish, and whether he misses Chicago at all. There's also the project he describes as the most poignant recording session I've ever been a part of. Brad Wood is the kind of person with whom you can talk music for hours, and I did. There easily could have been a part three. Maybe someday. For now, please enjoy part two of this Carol Pop conversation with Brad Wood. I'm gonna leave you with my good side. 
When you went in to record Whip Smart, the second album, was it like an eager thing for you to do? Like, were you excited about it? Was it sort of daunting? Like, okay, now we have to follow this thing up. She was recording uh, Whip Smart songs that be- that would end up on Whip Smart within months of us finishing uh, Guyville. It was almost like we didn't stop recording. She would come in when I had time and when she had time, and um, and we would track stuff. And sometimes that would turn into a full-blown song, or she would ditch it or, or scrap sections. Um, she's ruthless with her own songwriting, ruthless. As all great songwriters I've learned are, they will hack away ruthlessly at their own creations if they don't think it's you know met you know met the bar they'll just whack away throw things away or just take a bridge or just the chorus or repurpose a section of a song in a new thing it's uh, uh it's a bloody business and uh so we were already recording um before Guyville was out we were on you know what what would become whip smart right and then at some point you ended up in the bahamas with it right yeah that was casey's idea so early 94 we had tracked most of the record, but almost none of the vocals. And it was really cold, as it is in Chicago then. And um, But Liz had signed um, a new deal uh, with Matador slash Atlantic, and um, there was more money for her and more money to make this record. And we were kind of wondering why, you know, we're trying to cut vocals in a studio that had really bad heat. <laughs> it was really cold in there. And she's like, I wish we could just go somewhere warm. And then Casey's like, I'm on it. And within a couple of hours, we were, uh, you know, talking to the people at Compass Point in the Bahamas. And by the end of that week, we were on plane, on a plane flying over there to cut vocals. It was great. It wasn't like you guys hit a dead end and you needed to clear your heads and do some new artistic exploration and a difference. The songs were already done. She just needed to cut the vocals and you did it in the Bahamas. Yeah, that's it. We wanted to... Well, we were supposed to cut the remaining vocals or all of the vocals and then mix the record. And I think we had two or maybe three weeks booked. And um, and we ran into the buzzsaw of uh, warm weather and rum and um, and just the Bahamian pace of things. So we, we ended up just cutting vocals <laughs> and nobody cared. It was, we didn't care. We had a great time. It was really relaxing. And I think it was uh, maybe the first time in my career where um, we let the money take some of the burden. Uh, always had worked really fast and with really tight constraints because of, of, you know, just the nature. You don't have a lot of money to spend. You don't have a lot of time to give. So uh, this was one of those opportunities where, you know, we had barely spent any money on this, you know, much larger recording budget. Well, let's go and do something nice. So we rewarded ourselves while also working. It was like a working holiday. We worked every day. We just didn't work at the crazy pace that we had been. And you didn't freeze afterwards. Oh, it was so nice. Or during. That was so fun. You know, you did a little more sort of experimentation or like the song Whip Smart has that kind of bouncy, uh, you know, drum machine thing going on. It's very catchy. Uh, Would you say in general that there was any sort of change in how you approached that album or was it really just a continuation, but just with different material? Uh, the directive from Liz was to not do another Rolling Stones-y sounding recording, except when a song actually just was 
just sort of stonesy sounding because that's how she writes sometimes. The directive from Liz, as I recall, it was also to do things that are rhythmically more diverse and reflecting more of what was going on in hip hop and pop music, which is fine because I loved all that stuff. So you mentioned the song Whip Smart. That's my drums, me playing a, a, a pattern that we then recorded onto half inch tape and then made a tape loop a big long tape loop so that's a tape loop that we then so not recorded. a drum machine i take it back it's it's got a nope. good feel to it so i'm glad it's you there's no drum machine on any of it um there is i, I did do a loop in sound tools which by then i i bought which is a predecessor to uh sound pro tools and um i did a loop of me playing uh a drum pattern that became i think shane um and then Casey had bought a wire recorder, an old-fashioned vintage wire recorder, using a spool of wire to actually record onto. And then we recorded that loop of that onto this ratty old wire recorder. And then that was recorded, like the output of that, back onto tape. And that became the basis for that song. Uh, Nashville, uh, more of me wanting to sound like um, like laser-guided melodies, like, you know, like spiritualized, where um, that's me on kick, snare, and hi-hat, or a ride cymbal, and, and nothing else, and just a couple of room mics, right? Um, maybe a mono room, I can't remember, but it's a big open sound in the live room with all of the absorption taken off just to get the biggest, most reverberant sound I could out of that room, lots of compression, and that's just a single performance. Um, we, we did that song many, many, many times in different sessions, mostly just her and I on guitar, me on drums, um, not playing to a click, just, um, you know, eye contact, her in the control room, singing and playing. Um, I love that song, Nashville. That's beautiful. Um, I, lo I, I love a lot of it, but it, we deliberately didn't want to do something that was like Guyville type, you know, part two. Right. Well, were you both happy with it at the end? I was. Yeah. I, I think Liz is too. I think that... Uh, uh, I think the critical response to it was positive, but um, uh, for whatever reason, um, uh, you know, she chose not to tour it initially with that band. So she 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 canceled the the, the U.S. tour um, right before the album came out, and uh, you know the day or the day of of the David Letterman show. So uh, Supernova was doing really well on the charts. It had, you know, topped the alternative charts and it moved into top 40 and there was, you know, Atlantic was going to push money into that. And, um, and we were playing David Letterman, you know, the week the album came out, it had a really high album debut back in those days, you know, selling enough records to, uh, to debut in the top 20 or top 30 was, that's a lot of records. And, um, it was all going according to plan, but she wanted to uh, not tour, and she kind of put the brakes on it all. Were you disappointed by that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never been in a touring band since. Um, it was, uh, we were going to be on a tour bus and play multiple dates and um, multiple shows in each city. So sold out in Boston, sold out in Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, you know, obviously Chicago, other cities. Um, I was really looking forward to it. We were going to leave, I think, the day after we played Letterman. And um, instead, I got on a plane and flew home. Uh, I, was, I was disappointed. What, what do you think the reason for that was? You'd have to ask her. Um, uh, but the pressure was intense, and um, I just don't want to speak for her. But um, 
she was not happy, and uh, from what I could tell, and she wanted to uh, maybe slow down the pace of things. That's my guess. But uh, she could tell you more specifically. She's talked about it a lot, so you could Google it. But um, I had uh, I had really hoped, for my own selfish reasons, to to play a tour um, of those songs. And I never have. I've never played any of those songs live. Uh, from Whipsmart, which is, and that's not true. I think we did a couple of songs on a couple of 90, uh, 94 era tours. That's that's not true. I think we did, I know we did, yeah. So I played a handful of them, but we hadn't put the album together, you know, completely. So I was looking forward to playing, you know, Nashville Live and stuff. Which I never got around to it. Well, so you can start planning now for the anniversary tour of uh, Whipsmart. <laughs> I don't think that Liz is ever going to ask me to be on a stage with her again. She's had lots of opportunities. She's never asked. And this is the 30th anniversary of Guyville, and uh, I assume there'll be a tour. I hope there is. And I don't think, I, I, I've long ago stopped um, hoping that she would ask me to play drums or bass with her, even like one show. She, it never occurs to her, or if it does, she, she's got a reason why she doesn't do things. Well, when she hears this, she'll be like, oh yeah, I should do that. She and I have talked about it from my own standpoint. Um, my ability to play an entire set's worth of Liz Fair music that would span her entire now, like almost 30-year career, is probably limited. My ability to play the songs that I played drums on, I'm still, I can still do that. If you did one of those album tours where it's just like just, just Guyville or just Guyville and Whipsmart, then you're, then you're fine. She and I are great friends, and obviously we worked on... Soberish together. I love her. She's like she's like a, a sibling. You know, she's like my sister, that a kid sister I never had. But also like w more talented and smarter than than I'll ever be. <laughs> on White Chocolate Space Egg, the third album. Yeah, you you started on that one, but you did some of it. I didn't start it. Um, we we weren't working together anymore, and we weren't in contact at all from like '94 after the Higher Learning soundtrack song that we she and I worked on. Um, we didn't really talk to each other for a few years. And um, she had made uh, what became, you know, the sessions for White Chocolate Space Egg started with Scott Litt in Los Angeles. And uh, I had nothing to do with it, was unaware of it, just doing my thing. And um, sometime later, I don't know when she started those sessions, but sometime later, uh, Chris and Gerard from Matador contacted me about whether I'd be interested in recording a couple of songs for the new Liz record. And I said, sure. And they sent me a CD of everything that had been recorded that included Scott Litt's stuff and stuff she'd done either before or since or during that with other producers and self-produced. And, um, and I picked either five or seven songs. We had two weeks to do it. And um, uh, Tom Lord Algae was going to mix the entire album. So I didn't have to mix it. It was two weeks of really intense work with um, with myself and John Heiler, who was my uh, Pro Tools engineer and keyboard player and programmer extraordinaire. And uh, we had Leroy Bach come in and play on, on Uncle Alvarez. He played double bass. Jason Chasco played some guitar. Um, but mostly it was just me and Liz and, and John running Pro Tools and doing programming. It was, it, and it was really efficient. And we had a really good time. And you guys so, were good again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were. Yeah. I don't think we've ever not been good. We just needed to take a break. We had reasons, you know, and they were personal and professional. Um, it's, it's difficult. Money changes everything. Success changes everything. 
And um, and I'm not immune to it either. I am not. I don't want to paint this as if it was like Liz was making one mistake after another because that wasn't the case, um, especially given the circumstances. And I try to remember who I was in 1994 and who she was. You know, we had we had other things going on in our lives, and I had uh, an opportunity to make some records and to do things with my career, with my new management. I, f- I had a producer manager. Oh my God! You know, at the beginning of 1994, I had really exciting things to do and being in Liz's band and sort of being tethered to Liz um, while she tried to figure things out was probably not my best move. So uh, most of what we did, aside from the canceling that tour, was you know smart for all of us. So on White Chocolate Space Egg, you produced and, and perf- did bass and drums on Polyester Bride and uh, Johnny Feelgood as well. So like the two singles from that record actually were ones after Scott Litt, the you know hit maker for REM, got done, and you came back in. Yes, those are songs that got passed. All those songs got passed over. Polyester Bride goes back to the girly sound stuff, right? I've, I've heard like a demo of that from way back when. I think I think so. I don't remember, um, but she had done a version of it that uh, for uh, I, I think for the White Chocolate Sessions. I just heard it differently. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm proud of the fact that all of the singles, I think there are actually three singles um, for that record, all came from um, songs that had been set aside that I was like, oh, no, this is a single. It made me feel good about my ability to identify, you know, good songs. Um, but also it was where my head was at and where John and I were headed, had been headed for a while from an electronics standpoint. And, uh, you know, ideas that I had, he was able to help actualize and, and he contributed a lot, uh, uh, especially with you know the electronic stuff on on those sessions. Another one that you recorded probably around the same time as White Chocolate Space Egg was Smashing Pumpkins' "Adore," mm-hmm. and and you were on those sessions. And then he moved on, moved to L.A. and worked with Flood and other people as well. But I looked, I, even on that one, I noticed that that as far as I can tell, at least you you produced. Like the, t- the first two songs on the album, to Sheila and Ava Adore, and Ava Adore being the lead single. So you still did the single, even though you had other stuff going on. I was supposed to record the entire record. I was supposed to make the whole record, but I got fired. <laughs> but, but he still kept your your single, so you still got that one. Yeah, I worked. I worked for. I worked for months on that uh, on that session, and um, and we weren't a good fit, Billy and I. And I chalk up. Uh, a lot of that these days to what was clearly a very traumatic time for not just the whole band, but specifically Billy, because his mother, his beloved mother, who, you know, he, (laughs) I think her name was Martha. Um, I mean, they're very close. And she had died of cancer, I think maybe just the year before, like months before. And his marriage had come apart. He'd been with his wife for years before they even got married. And, um, and he had to kick um, Jimmy Chamberlain out of the band, you know, uh, not even quite a year before. And again, the thing that matters the most is the tragedy of Jonathan Melvoin's death, which precipitated Jimmy having to leave the band. Um, that's a lot. Plus, you've just put out like a massive selling hit record, and then you've been touring and recording and writing nonstop since like 88 or 89. Um, I'm 59 years old and it's been almost, uh, 
30 years since I worked with Billy and the Pumpkins. And my 15-year-old self is a lot more empathetic to, to Billy specifically, to, to his plight, what he was going through. It was must have been incredibly difficult. And um, we weren't a good fit. We were for a few weeks, and then we weren't. And then it just went on for months, and it was torturous for me, and I imagine it was for him as well, because we had a lot of expectations. We'd spent a lot of time talking and planning. And, and a lot of those plans just didn't come to fruition, or they or they did, but only temporarily. Um, I wasn't the right person to work with Billy at that time. And I don't know if I'm ever going to be the right kind of person to work with Billy. Uh, it was painful to learn it in real time. And I imagine it was painful for him as well. Um, but it certainly was for me. It was the biggest disappointment I've ever had in my career. Um, yeah, by far. It's a bitter pill to swallow. I'm happy with the results and I enjoyed um, aspects of it. Uh, there's certainly no lack of talent <clears throat> and certainly no lack of um, will to do the hard work. That's a hardworking group of people there, especially with Billy. Um, but... Um, I am proud of my contributions, and I'm glad that they remain. My name is on that record. It's uh, accurate, as far as I'm concerned, what I, my contributions are. Um, am I friends with Billy? No. But if he were to reach out to me and want to get a cup of coffee these days, I probably would say yes. <laughs> I'm happy to see that he's a dad. Um, I was sad when his father passed. I know that uh, his, his dad came by for a few sessions. And his brother came by for a few sessions, and um, those interactions are the ones where I was able to watch Billy. Um, and also, to be honest, with my uh, then-infant daughter, uh, our, our first kid, uh, Olivia, was six weeks old when I started that record. And the way that he um, would play with Olivia, who was a newborn, essentially, and the kindness that he showed, uh, not just Olivia, but especially to my wife, Maria, um, and those interactions with his father and especially with his brother were really moving. And um, sometimes those were the things that kept me coming back um, another week because, um, because he's, you know, he's not as bad as, um, as he can be portrayed. He's not as bad as sometimes, you know, his own words can sometimes, you know, portray him. Um, right. And he's got friends that have lasted for decades, and he's had people work with him literally for decades. And I have to take all of that into account. He and I were not a good fit. I don't know that we ever would be a good fit, but for the time period that we were trying to work together, I was especially not a good fit for him. So that's about all I have to say about that. I wish him peace and, and happiness. I'll just say one thing and then I'll move on from it. Just going going from Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, which was this massive double album and very big sounding. Um, and Adore is a more intimate record. It's it's an interest, it's interesting that he would work with you on that going into it because you weren't known for that kind of big bombastic sort of thing. You were known for sort of getting more at the heart of the material. And you know, maybe in theory that sounded better than it worked out practically or something. Tashila Avador are really, I mean, I'm glad that they opened the record. I think that's a really good reflection of, of what Billy and I had cooked up for that record. And uh, it was kind of, and those were the two first songs we worked on. <laughs> and, 
And we were firing on all cylinders there. I felt really confident, uh, you know, the first four weeks of that record, maybe not even four weeks, might have been only two or three weeks. But um, I felt like I was doing good work and providing a real value to him and, and the rest of the band members. But it wasn't meant to last. And um, I wasn't really ready uh, to work with someone like that. And I learned a lot. Uh, I, like other things in life, we all you know, have our failures and our disappointments. And sometimes they're not, hopefully, not as public as that. <laughs> but it does happen. And the things that we should do uh, after a period of sort of mourning this uh, disappointment is to look through the circumstances and, you know, sift through the ashes and the wreckage <clears throat> and try to pull out anything positive out of that going forward. And sometimes, uh, for me, it, all that's left of any value is to is to know a little bit more about what not to do next time, you know? Um, just trying not to make the same type of mistakes. Um, and I'm not talking about mistakes Billy made. I'm talking about my mistakes. Uh, um, you know, Billy hired me with his set of expectations, and for a brief period, I met them, and then I didn't. And um, and it's not for lack of his uh, efforts that, it, it you know, we tried hard. We tried hard for a long time, and it was grueling. And I just can't imagine that um, that that's what he wanted. <laughs> he, he, you know, he's not somebody who like signs up for you know imminent defeat. You know, like this guy likes he likes victories, likes wins. He likes a positive feeling. He likes to come through a, a, a difficult you know process and and feel good about it. Um, he's highly accomplished. It, it just didn't work out. And I don't know if uh, and I don't know I don't I don't know. If I would ever be the right guy to work with him or someone like him, and that's my takeaway, is that I have had to be more more careful in, in who I choose to work with when I have a choice. So Baruch Gasol, how did you get hooked up with them and, and what were your expectations while working, you know, on that and also sort of seeing the dynamic in that band? Because that's an interesting group of four people. Okay, so I was working with what would become number one cup. I think they were called Elliot. And uh, and they were rehearsing in a, a loft building in Wicker Park uh, on the top floor that uh, uh, is in a bank vault, in a great big building that was a bank vault, great big door, you open it up and you go in, you practice in this really reverberant brick space. And they were practicing there and, and we were doing what I called pre-production, right? Show up and listen to rehearsals and we make, you know, some suggestions and then I'd leave. And they were sharing that practice space with Veruca, what was going to become Veruca Salt. And... Um, Seth from Number One Cup would talk about how these guys are pretty good, you know? They're just getting started. It's really good stuff. And I think, if I remember correctly, they uh, were going to open for Number One Cup at the Czar Bar. Or Phyllis's. I can't remember which one. But in the end, that was the first time I saw them. But I wasn't there to see Veruca Salt. I was there to see Number One Cup. And I only saw a few minutes of the end of Veruca Salt's set but was immediately impressed by what I heard. And um, it just all happened really fast. And I don't remember the interim, but at some point, Jim Powers and I had um, made an agreement where he paid me in advance 
$5,000, I think, to record songs that would be putting, he'd be putting on his brand new singles only record label, similar to Sub Pop's singles era, seven inch singles. And it would be, I think it was five singles. So 10 songs, one song per side, if I remember correctly. And I might get the numbers wrong, but he basically paid me advance six months before, let's say, and and so had Sub Pop. They had given me advances on future work so that I could put together enough money to to refurbish my control room. After five years, it needed a new console, it needed a new patch bay, it needed new wiring and new tape machines. And I was able to do all of that with the money that Minty Fresh advanced me and Sub Pop. And then for the next couple of years, I went about recording for those record labels and paid down what I, you know, my, what I was, what I owed them. And, um, I thought I was going to do a series of singles. That was the agreement that Jim and I had. And Jim, I, I, Jim was at that time, that year was going to be the, one of the coordinators of the, around the Coyote Arts Festival. And they were going to do, uh, live performances, I think in the parking lot of Idville if I remember correctly, or maybe over at the double door or something. But anyway, he was looking for bands to book. I said, you got to book Veruca Salt. They're amazing. And so that was how that relationship began. And shortly after that, he said, hey, you know, those songs I gave you money for, I want to put them all into one band. <laughs> and it's going to be Veruca Salt. And that's how we did that. So that's how that came about. And then all of a sudden we were in the studio making uh, a single initially, but then it turned into an album. And was Cedar the single? Cedar's the first song we ever recorded with them. The first time they ever were in the studio, if I, if I remember correctly. And did you think, wow, this is like a powerhouse power pop song? Yep. Yes. And I had a feeling that uh, it was going to do really well. Uh, so we did a, a bit of recording to get that song and one other one. I don't know what the B-side of that uh, of that single is, but... That thing was blowing up on national rock radio when we were in the studio, I think maybe spring or summer of 94, trying to now make an album. And it was already charting. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> so you had Nina Gordon and Louise Post. They took turns singing and playing and, uh, you know, both played guitar. Like, what was your sense of, like, you know, the dynamic between them, their songwriting abilities? I didn't know them well enough uh, in the in the time we spent making uh, American Thighs to know what their like the personal dynamics were that much. I, my job was to record them as well as I could and help Jim, who was not a a drummer for very long prior to joining that band. Right, amazingly accomplished guitar player. I mean, just what a player! But he wasn't playing guitar in that band. He's playing drums and. Um, just like an encyclopedia of rock, he knows what he wants to be doing. But at that time, he was struggling at times to, you know, uh, to have the stamina to play six, seven, eight takes of a song over the course of a couple of days and to nail every fill that he wanted. To. He's, you know, an ambitious drummer um, because he's such a great musician. Um, I spent a lot of time with the band trying to make sure that the rhythm section was you know, really making, you know, making as good as they could. Um, and Nina and Louise, it was really kind of just get great guitar tones, help them get great guitar tones, plug them into cool amps and just record it. You know, I mean, it, it was, I don't remember a lot of effort with the guitars. Louise is a great guitar player. Nina is a, is, she's got one of the best right hands in rhythm guitar playing since like, you know, 
Angus Young. I mean, man, she can just, she can lay down a rhythm guitar part that just makes you go, oh, God, you know. And then Louise, uh, uh, I do remember her wanting to get, uh, you know, different kinds of tones for her solos and um, and make sure they sort of cut through. So they're, they're, they're pretty bright and they're really distorted. I think she had some almost like metal sort of guitar amps back then, or I, I don't remember exactly um, what she was playing through, but we definitely turned up the gain with the pedals and stuff and went hard, you know, uh, such ambitious, aggressive players, man. Uh, and then really after that, it was all about vocals and that was Jim and Nina and Louise and me and, um, and, you know, Steve hanging around, but really it was Nina, Nina Louise and, and Jim. Steve like the bass player. Yeah. Yeah. Coming up with all these amazing harmonies, you know, and, and cutting a great vocal, lead vocal, and then working on endless harmonies. Cause I had these, uh, you know, I had, I had the, the tape space, the track space to, to do stuff. And, um, and just referencing a lot of cool music and listening to a lot of Queen and, <laughs> and, uh, Thin Lizzy and ACDC and just trying to, just trying to make it sound big and enormous. Um, it was a lot of fun. I don't really know about their dynamic as like songwriters. It seems like there was a, uh, there would be a Louise songs and there were Nina songs and we would sort of work to, they would work to make sure that there was equal representation between the two. So it seemed pretty fair handed. And I, I didn't, right. you know, they, everyone seemed to get along great. Uh, that's what I remember. Although, you know, it was hard, you know, the hard work, there's a lot of hours spent and, um, there were some tears and stuff, but it was nothing that I didn't see in general making records. Making records is not easy sometimes. Well, and that's another album where it came out on Minty Fresh and then got picked up. Was yeah. it Geffen? I think yeah. Geffen bought it. Yeah. So, and then it, and then that took off too. And it was like another one of these great success stories out of Chicago. That was really fun. Produced by Brad Wood. Yeah. Engineered, produced, and mixed. Yep. God damn it. <laughs> and then 20 years later, you're out in the valley and they were. Yeah. Doing doing another one with you. That was, I think, to this day, maybe the most poignant recording session I've ever been a part of. Um, older, wiser, very grateful. Um, everybody involved, um, hyper aware of the good fortune that we've all had to be able to reconvene in any capacity, <laughs> let alone musical. Um, I don't know that I've ever cried as much, uh, usually after, <laughs> um, but not because I was upset. Just, it was beautiful to witness. It really was. That was a, that was a fun story for me to report. It was, it was one, I always like doing them kind of like this podcast. I like doing, talking to people when they're not in the middle of like some big promotional cycle and they were just working. I just knew they were working on an album and I was going to be in LA and I'm just like, I should just do something on the creative part of it as opposed to the afterward talking about it part. And yeah. so I was able to see them over at your studio and, and rehearsing and playing and talking to all of them. And, and yeah, the part of what I remember the most was like, we've grown up, we've, you know, we, we appreciate what we had and, you know, we realized there are times where, you know, we didn't get along as well as we could have and we patched things up and, and, you know, it was great. It was a great story and, and the music was really good too. Yeah. I know that was really satisfying. That one ticked every box for me. The Bangles, Debbie Peterson, their drummer and uh, singer and songwriter, uh, was my guest a few weeks ago. I know. I heard and it. I knew that I, I knew this going in that just David Kahn had just brought in a lot of extra musicians and really, you know, and obviously songs as well. Um, and and she just felt so deflated by the process of making albums that 
you know, they were popular and that they, and you should be happy when you're able to make hit records. And instead, you know, there was a lot of unhappiness there, which is, it just seems like a shame when you're, you know, producing art, but then, you know, they finally came, uh, you know, 2003, they had their sort of older and wiser getting back together after they'd done their other stuff. And they did dollar revolution with you and you let them be a band go figure. Um, Yes. <laughs> I, I've always been a fan of the Bengals and including their, you know, top 40 successes. Um, and I'm friends with David Kahn and have been friends with David for a long time. And he's, he's been, I wouldn't say a mentor, but like a big brother in some ways. Um, pretty great. And uh, I knew about him long before I ever met him. And those, and I knew of him because he was one of the rare producers who, whose work I liked back when I was in college and getting really upset about how bad so many <laughs> rock records were sounding if they were made in the States. So he was making like translator records for 415 records. The name of the label was 415. And I loved the way those sounded. And I started noticing, I started looking, he was one of the first rock producers whose name I would look for when I was, you know, working in the record store and I would see his names there like we'll put this on and by God everything he worked on sounded great not that it sounded slick it just sounded right I didn't know better back then yeah well so all over the place the first Bengals record I thought sounded great and it was 1984 and stuff did yeah. not sound like that in 1984 and he'd record you know that they picked him for those reasons he'd done a bunch of stuff for Slash and he'd and for 415 and he had a great reputation and he still does that's my point. Um, but he's also from an era and from a, a, a school of thought uh, that left him open to the possibility that, okay, this is like your third release or whatever the record was that they were working on, where we're going to try some different things. We're going to try to shake it up. And, uh, and in the process of shaking things up, stepped on a lot of toes and hurt some feelings. And um, I didn't know anything about that stuff prior to... Uh, to the Bengals contacting me. But the reason the Bengals contacted me, besides, I hope, records I worked on that they liked the sound of, but also because my reputation had preceded me by 2001 when they reached out to me. And that reputation was, I don't ever hire anybody to play a part that a member of the band should be playing. I've never done it, and I don't think I'm ever going to. You know, I, I, I was known for that. Not that I won't hire a musician, but it's going to have to be agreement upon the band. And it's never to replace uh, a, a drummer or a bass player or a guitar player ever, right? It's supplemental, you know? If nobody here can play French horn, let's go hire a French horn player, <laughs> right? Right. I think it's the main reason they hired me is because they knew that I wasn't going to do that. And they'd already done that before. And um, I don't know. I listened to Debbie's interview and... I don't think at the time I ever heard her speak as strongly as she did um, about about that era. Um, maybe it wasn't time for her to do that, or uh, she was she had a recording head on when we were in the studio. But the band definitely enjoyed having one hundred percent control, and they had 100% control with somebody in me that um, was going to capture it correctly. I mean, there's all kinds of people you can hire to record your music without having any say in it. <laughs> you just, you know, or you could set up your own recording rig, or you could just have your teenage daughter, you know, run the logic session. You can record endlessly without anybody weighing in on what you're doing. 
But to find someone in 2001 who also had, you know, a couple decades of experience and could maybe actually, you know, you know, be a collaborator in this process and have some good ideas, uh, I think I was a really good fit for them. And they really enjoyed it. So they knew that they could show up and play and leave and they wouldn't come back the next day and it would sound like something completely different, you know? Like they, they, they had complete agency as far as I was concerned. And, um, and it wasn't anything different than I ordinarily did. But for them, I think at that time, it was quite a, a, a unique experience for them. Um, I wasn't there at those, uh, 80, in those 80s sessions or those, more importantly probably, those meetings, those production meetings, those management meetings. I don't, I don't know. You know uh, like I said, I'm friends with both David and everybody in that band. And I'm a fan of what they, as a group, did with David. I think that some really cool stuff. I, and I don't know the, the drum machine on Walk Like an Egyptian was, was a bad idea. That is such a purely pop song, you know. But I, 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 I will say this. I think that it's, it's communication skills that really matter when it comes to time to have that discussion. Like, well, you know, I don't know if we want to have real drums on this, and here's why. There's ways to say it that maybe would have uh, you know, gone over better. I don't know. I wasn't there. And I, and I have been in uh, occasionally uncomfortable situation, kind of, kind of caught between the two of them. I love David, and I love everybody in that band. Uh, and I, I, I like it all. <laughs> um, but that's not the first time I've been in a situation where uh, I was recording with an artist who had some really bad feelings about one of the previous experiences they'd had. It, it happens. It, it, it's like it's sometimes things don't work out. And like I mentioned with, you know, I, my experience with Billy Corgan and the Pumpkins, that was one of those situations with me where things didn't work out for me. And, um, you know, I, I just don't know if I don't, I, I don't like to lay blame so much. It's, it's a really hard process to, to set yourself up in a room with someone you've hired and entrust them to do, uh, the technical work and also creative work. And you got to hope that you made a good decision and that it works out not only creatively, but maybe even commercially. And when the commercial part is getting to be really big and pushing down, applying a lot of pressure, like with the pumpkins and like with the bangles at that time, man, it, you know, it kind of can warp everything. It can affect things. And people will behave in ways that maybe some people are thinking way down the line, like, okay, well, you know what, we're going to do this. And in 20 years, you're going to thank me because you'll have a house in Malibu or whatever, right? And that's a legitimate way to look at things. Um, um, by the time I was working with the Bengals, they had nothing to prove to anyone, it seems, except for to themselves. And what they wanted was a really bespoke, warm, and inviting experience. And man, what an honor it was to I know how to do that. <laughs> and it was just an honor to be like the person they chose. I was so stoked to be able to be that guy. And we rented a house in Beverly Hills because it was kind of equidistant to where they all lived at the time. And I, you know, I soundproofed a couple of the rooms. We moved into it and we called it Stately Bangle Manor. And we spent months working on that record there at sometimes a leisurely pace and sometimes really intense and harried. And, um, but Lots and lots of laughs, and it just—it was kind of fun to sort of witness uh, them 
having this experience. Uh, again, I just was, what a pleasure to be in the room. And Peter Holsapple came and played and it just was so much cool stuff. It was really a great experience for me. It was, again, another poignant thing, a little less poignant for me maybe than when I recorded Veruca Salt because, uh, you know, I don't, I, didn't, I don't have the baggage. I don't have the history with the Bengals, but cl- clearly this is an important record for them to be making. And they didn't have, as far as I could tell, any, uh, you know, commercial pressures on them. They did this without benefit of a record label. They paid for it themselves. They were, they, they'd earned the position, you know, and they were um, really enjoying it. That's what I remember. It was a great experience. Was there anything about them as players that surprised you or seeing them working together? No. Because <laughs> I'd seen the Bengals before. I'd seen them with uh, touring with EIEIO opening back during their heyday, right? And EIEIO's um, tour manager or manager became the Bengals' tour manager and eventual manager. Um, so it was a, a reconvening of old friends going back to the mid-'80s, you know, 84, 85, 86 era, I think. Um, so I already seen them play live a bunch of times and I knew how formidable they actually were, um, which kind of helped make, uh, make it easier for me to understand at the time when a song like Walk Like an Egyptian came out, like, yeah, sometimes you do stuff, you do it for the hits, you know, I understand, you know, like I, I, I get it, you know, like back then you would use a drum machine on a, on a song that was going to be going to commercial radio because, because that's what everybody else is doing. And then you go see the band live, and you're like, oh, they're ripping it up. You know, they tear the ass out of this song live, you know? And uh, that's just, it's what people did. It wasn't what I wanted to do, but I had already seen the Bangles. Plus, also, Walking like, like an Egyptian and anything off of that record still sounded good, you know? It was, so it didn't violate that code that I'd had from, you know, when I first started. It was like, you know, if stuff's going to sound crappy, well, then it doesn't matter what consensus you've made. You've made the wrong ones. You know, you've made, you know, right out of the gate, if you decided to turn all the guitars down, but those guitars sound ripping, you know, especially at the end um, of, I, I keep using Walk Like an Egyptian, because that's their biggest song from that era. Like, like, that's just a big distorted guitar that they add a harmony to. And it sounds really cool. It, it hints back to like, you know, the trogs or like, you know, garage rock from the 60s. Like, they didn't do anything wrong making that record, that song. They, they, they cut themselves a hit single that is funny and cool, and it's a novelty, and it is not represented, a representation of what all the band can do. And I think, you know, if you're just a fan like I am, you sort of see the Bengals for their entirety. Like, they, they did all kinds of hard, harder rocking stuff and pop stuff, and also, like, lush ballads later on, all of it, all of it good. They, yeah. they, they, they have, they, they always got the assignment, whether or not it was painful is another thing, but, and, you know, they've got nothing to be ashamed about with their discography as far as I'm concerned. So what got you from Chicago to LA? I moved to Los Angeles because it was where my wife was already making plans to move to when I met her in 1994 and, uh, and she wanted to no longer live in Chicago because she was from Miami originally. And she wanted to be someplace that was warmer. <laughs> and I will tell you this, Los Angeles has Chicago beat when it comes to warm weather. So we moved here. Really? For- what? Yeah. yeah, I know. I know. Hard to believe. What? Um, we moved here for the weather. 
And I don't regret it. My only regret about moving to Los Angeles is that we didn't do it sooner. That's all. But you're working with different bands in LA than you would have in Chicago, presumably. Not really. I don't really work with very many LA-based bands. That's changing a little bit now. But um, by the time I left Chicago, I wasn't really working with Chicago-based bands much either. And I wasn't really working in Chicago much for the last few years I was there. I was traveling because I had the opportunity to, and it was fun. Um, it also helped solidify this idea that maybe I didn't want to live in Chicago for the rest of my life. And that's mostly because of the weather. No regrets. I love there Chicago. There you go. I love the city. It's a great town, man. It really is. And we were there this summer with our kids. And it was like Chicago was putting on a show for us, man. Wow. The street fairs. It seemed like everybody's really excited about a non-COVID, you know, summer and we just ate like kings and drank and wandered around this beautiful city. It was really, again, great weather. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't like raining all the time. Uh, late June, we had that window where it wasn't, you know, the heat bubble. We had Chicago great- in the summer, Chicago in the fall. Fantastic. Yep. And, and some of the spring, too. But oh yeah, I, I I miss the smell of springtime when you know things are melting and like the earth is very earthy. I, that's a, not just Chicago; it's a Midwestern thing. I do miss that. I don't get that much out here in LA. But uh, Los Angeles suits me, um, climate-wise. Uh, I like being able to do what I do outdoors uh, year-round, except when it's pouring rain, like lately. Um, but that's why we came here. It wasn't because, I, you know, it wasn't a career move at all. It wasn't, it, was, an, it wasn't an industry thing. No, not in the slightest. In fact, I built my studio in the backyard 19 years ago, and I hardly ever set foot in any recording studios in Chicago or in Los Angeles, just like when I was in Chicago. I built my place there, and I, you know, I worked out of there. And my, my most consistent and best work is clearly tethered to my ability to come in at whatever hour I want to come in and work early if I want to and that kind of thing. So it's, I I don't really avail myself to all the really great recording studios around here and I don't hire session players. So like there's a lot of great session players that I'll never hire or very rarely hire. Um, I just basically live in a, a more suitable climate. That's all. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. That's all for episode 80 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Brad Wood for such an engaging, insightful conversation about the music he has produced and the lessons learned along the way. You can follow him on Instagram at bradwood underscore producifer. Also go to his website, bradwoodmusic.com, to read more about him, to hear the music he has produced, and to hire him to record you. Liz Fair's Exile and Guyville turns 30 years old in June. So listen to that and all the other great stuff that Brad has produced. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Wake. We must never be apart. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you could follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you can hear about upcoming episodes and events. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.